Thank you guys uh, for gathering with us here at Mission Church. Our desire here at Mission Church is to do three things, and that's to worship Jesus, and it's to make disciples, and um, prayerfully to see the, the power of the Holy Spirit, to see him multiply in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that we do that predominantly is that we believe that the preaching of the God's Word is the driving force of the local body of believers. It is the most important thing in your week. More than eating itself is listening to, engaging with the preaching of God's holy, sanctifying word. And so we have gathered here uh, not to come to church. The church came here today to listen to the preaching and teaching of God's word, to worship him, to fellowship, and to pray. Um, if you have not heard this in the last few months, um, I want to make sure that things are very clear this morning. God is the gospel. God is the good news. What we've been seeing over the last several months, and even as we continue into this Advent uh, season in the life and, and of the history of Christianity, um, is that throughout this series here at Mission, is that, man, we have had one aim, and that aim is this, is to seek and save your God as the ultimate good of the gospel. What do we mean by this? Well, our, our meaning behind this is that ultimately Jesus reconciles us to God. And because of that reconciliation, yes, there are great gifts such as redemption and justification. There are great uh, rewards such as heaven and streets of gold and a mansion. If you've ever heard a southern gospel song, there appears to be some great building going on up in heaven. And we're all riding a good old gospel ship, and one day we're going to get to see that beautiful pillar in the sky. But the ultimate goal of the gospel is none of those fruits. At the root of it is at the end, if heaven was a trash heap, but God was there, then heaven is worth it because the ultimate goal is God and not all of those fruits. But what we've also seen as a group of pastors and elders and as a community of faith, is that when we mention who is this God, that there's a, a lot of misconceptions, that they don't really know the God of the Bible, that we can easily drift from that. As you guys know, if you're friends with me or have been around me very much, um, you know that at my house that we love such things that everything that is Christmas. We are consumed with Christmas um, and one of my favorite animated films during Christmas, I think it was 1965 when this first came out, was the, the Charlie Brown Christmas. And it was airing this week, and I watched it by myself um, until my daughter came at the very end, because um, I was bound and determined to watch it. I don't watch any television on live time, but I watched the Charlie Brown special, and it wasn't on DVR this week. And I told my daughter, don't laugh at me when I cry. Because the, the thing, even in 1965, um, and the creator of the, the Charlie uh, Brown kind of uh, comic strip actually had to go to bat to put this on the air and actually share the gospel as they do in the real meaning of Christmas. But the whole conflict within that little cartoon is what? Is that Charlie Brown keeps walking around and all of these people, mind you, are doing religious things. They are preparing for the, the, the presentation, the play that is going to be the first nativity, and yet Charlie Brown, who is the director of this play, continues to ask all the other kids, what is the true meaning behind all of this? 
What is the meaning behind this story? What is the meaning? And, and he keeps talking about how it's all based around consumerism, that even his dog, Snoopy, has bitten into consumerism as he is wanting to compete for the $500 or whatever of decorating his house. And he ends up winning and all those sorts of things. The whole theme is, is that we have um, a case of mistaken identity and purpose when it comes to Christmas. That we can go about even religious things. There were shepherds, there was Mary, there was all of these sorts of things, and yet no one got what it was really about, except for a little boy in a blanket. Who was willing to step out and say, I know what the real meaning is, Charlie Brown. And the lights go down, and he goes, lights please. And he steps out on stage, this is where I cry, and he reads from Luke's account, of what this is all about, and it changes the course of the entire show. I would contend to you today, brothers and sisters, that many people within the American culture are, are going about in religious activity, even the Christmas season, and yet like many of those children, though they are religious, have missed the true meaning, one, of who God is, two, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, and his purpose and plan, his character and his nature. And so in an attempt to fight against that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been talking about this God and his character because we want to press in to who he is. If you have never read the book of Judges, I would encourage you to do so. To fill you in, we have met this guy named Moses. Hopefully you know who that is, even if you're not a churchgoer. Moses is the guy who God gave the Ten Commandments to. Moses has now died. We have the book of Joshua, which I would encourage you to read the book of Joshua. It's really intense and awesome, very uh, you know, dramatic and action-filled. Joshua is this young guy who God puts um, as the heir of kind of the leaders of the Israelites. Joshua is a great, great man of God. It comes to the end of Joshua, now to the beginning of the book of Judges and Joshua dies. So essentially the, the Israelites there are without their kind of fearless earthly leader and because of that a lot of crazy things begin to happen to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. What, as they have gone into the promised land, if, if you remember, the promised land is filled with all of these different kinds of people groups. And these people groups do not worship God. They do not worship Yahweh. They do not worship the Lord. They are pagan worshipers. Essentially, they're Satanistic, all right? Um, even to the point in worshiping all of these different things to, to the degree that many of these practices amongst these people groups was the sacrifice of children to these gods, these idols, these statues of bronze and to gold. And so God, not wanting his people to resemble and look like these pagan worshipers, and because of the just horrific practice of sacrificing their own kids to these false gods, God sends Joshua, and even earlier in the, in the book of Judges, um, God will send um, his people to destroy all of those people. And that's exactly what happens. Most of the time by brunt force, as God has an issue with the taking of life 
of children and the worship of these false god. God does not want his people to be mixing and, and looking like these people. He does not want them to be influenced by this perverse culture and in an act of judgment sends the Israelites to, to punish these wicked people. In waiting on the Messiah to come, God's people begin to drift though. They would take over a land and there would be some people left. Or they would completely destroy this group of people, but there would be another people over here. And so in waiting on this promised Messiah to come, God's people, they would be faithful and destroy a city, but because there was a remnant of these pagan worshipers, guess what began to happen? They began to drift from faithfulness to God. They begin to drift toward the culture. They begin to drift toward ease, toward comfort, toward results that we've learned inside of our, our missional communities called pragmatism. That they're seeking to be result-driven instead of faithful to God's word. Instead of trusting God, his, his character, they're lustfully drawn by these worldly successes of these pagan cultures. I mean, we're the people of God. We're poor. We're, we're barely making it. Look at these pagan folks. They're worshiping a God that isn't even real, but look at their wealth. Look at their power on the planet. And so the people of God begin to be jealous of that the Bible even tells us that they stop being fearful of God, stop being fearful of Yahweh, and become fearful of these pagan gods. This is the scene. The book of Judges tells a story of the downward spiral of Israel's spiritual life. This led to them walking away from the God that led them out of slavery. The Israelites divorced themselves from their God. They became adulterous lovers of other gods. They've gotten far away from his character. And even after he helps them, guess what happens? They return back home and begin to worship false idols. They would worship God as a pagan God. They did not know God. They had gotten so much like the world that they had no idea who the God of the Old Testament, who the God of the first five books, who the God of even Moses was. Though they were claiming to be God's people, they looked much more like the world than they were to be separate from the world and to be God's chosen, unique people. We see this inside of this, I think I have a slide for you guys on this. This is the pattern constantly uh, within... If we can pull this, do we have this slide, Maddox? Thanks. That's my nephew, he's awesome. All right, so this is the, the pattern throughout the book of Judges. And uh, it is this, is that the people of God, they, they sin. They begin to worship again, calves and wooden images. And even uh, as Tyler was, uh, Trevor was reading earlier, is this whole idea of what's known as the, the Asherah pole, which was a... A kind of a, it was a phallic symbol. It was a very sexual, immoral 
symbol um, inside of these different people groups. And so the people of God, they began to worship other gods, calves made out of gold and such and so, so on. And to restore them back to himself, God will allow these people groups to overthrow their kingdom, to take over their land. God would send these pagan people to destroy the Israelites. Well, it would get so bad for them that they would respond in repentance. Oh God, we, we have messed up. We have begun to worship. We don't know you. We look like these people. We're so sorry. So they would repent. They would turn from their sin, follow after God again. God would bring deliverance to them. That means that they would then destroy or cause civil war against uh, the Midianites and all these other different people groups, and God would give them back their land, and they would have peace. Now, the issue is that that didn't happen just once. This was the cycle that was happening over and over and over again. The people would sin, oppression would come, repentance would happen, deliverance would happen, peace would happen, then they would sin again, then they would be oppressed, and this is the pattern over and over and over for the people of God. And may I suggest to you, not only them, but us as well. In an act of grace and compassion, God begins to send prophets to his people. Prophets mean messengers of God. But he also did something in the book of Judges. He would send this group of men called Judges. Now, these were not men who wore black robes and sat behind some big counter uh, swinging a gavel. No, you have to picture that the, the judges inside the book of Judges were these warrior-like guys. If you've ever watched the WWE, I did when it was real. It's no longer real, I found out. But when I was a kid, it was real. And you have to imagine this wrestling kind of figure, if you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, or this warlike God that is just, I mean, these are, the Israelites' ninjas are the judges. These are bad dudes. These are the Bruce Lee, I'm surrounded by a hundred guys, and all I got is two sticks on some strings, and I'm about to beat everybody in this joint. Those are the judges. That's a picture of the judge. These were warrior-like, strong dude. A guy like Samson, if you have ever heard that, is mentioned inside the book of Judges. These were warriors. These were strong, strong men empowered by God to bring deliverance and to bring God's people back to themselves. So God, again, graciously sends these prophets, he sends these judges, and God begins to warn them to return, to repent, to come back to his character, to come back to his nature, and if they would do that, then he would give them back their land, they would no longer be in slavery. But if they didn't, devastation was going to come. The Israelites were terrorized at this point in chapter 6 by a group named the Midianites, and at this point, they were so oppressed by this group of people that they would literally hide out in caves for fear of life and death if they were caught by this group of pagan worshipers. And this is exactly where we find this random guy, this coward of a man, really, named Gideon. The Bible tells us inside of this passage that where do we meet Gideon? 
that Gideon is in the middle of the night and that he is threshing his wheat while using a wine press. Now, I'm not a farmer, but what I've learned is that inside the threshing of wheat is that you would gather up the wheat and then you would take what's called a winnowing fork and you would go out and you would do this in the middle of the day and you would take this large fork, you would scoop up the wheat, you would throw it into the air and when the gentle breeze came by, it would separate the husk from the seed. So the husk keeps blowing, the seed falls. That's not what we find Gideon doing. Gideon is so afraid of, uh, of this group of people that, that he is found in the middle of the night, you know, trying to use a pocket knife to unscrew a screw. I mean, that's how ridiculous he is using the wrong tool. He is using a wine press to thresh his wheat because he does not want to be caught by these people or them to believe that the Israelites even have food to sustain themselves. And this is the scene that happens. The Bible tells us here in this passage that the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon in the middle of the night. Now, quickly, let's, we all want to be good Bible readers here. I want to point out something very quickly. It's going to be like a drive-by shooting. But anytime that you see the word, the angel of the Lord, the word angel means messenger. But this specific title is the messenger of the Lord. This is a specific messenger, and you need to know whenever you read the Old Testament, it is believed by scholars and throughout church history that whenever you read the angel of the Lord, that it is not just this idea uh, of an angel flying this or just random. It's not Michael. It's not Gabriel. It is specifically God himself in a fleshly form. Specifically, and I believe in of the camp, it's Jesus himself seen in the Old Testament right here. This is called a theophany, or I would say a Christophany. It is a picture, an image of Jesus inside of the Old Testament. And so I would mind you that, that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, is the incarnation of God, it is before the virgin birth, it is for his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus shows up multiple times, like in the burning bush, and, and when he fights with, is it Jacob? Um, all these sorts of stories, we can see over and over again a specific angel, a specific messenger called the angel of the Lord, and that is the guy that shows up in a fleshly form here, and I would suggest to you that it is Jesus. So, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon in the middle of the night. And look at what Gideon, this kind of exchange that takes place. In verse 12, 612, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So thankful that within Scripture there is sarcasm. Because where do we find this cowardly man? In the middle of the night, using the wrong tool, to thresh his wheat. Does he sound like a mighty man of God? A mighty man of valor? It's believed that here that the angel of the Lord, that God himself is telling him and speaking into what he is going to become, but that he is currently not. And so we see inside of this passage in, in verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why then, excuse me, why then has all this happened to 
us and where are all his wonderful deeds and that our fathers recounted to us saying did not the Lord bring us from Egypt but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us in the land of Midian so you see what's taking place God shows up on the scene a man of valor the Lord is with you and immediately Gideon's response is to look around him and sarcastically slings one back, he tries to one-up God here, and says what? Man, where is God? I mean, if, if God was with us, then we wouldn't be under this oppression. If God was with us, then we wouldn't be in this darkness. If God was with us, we would be prosperous and we'd be landing, we'd be living in the promised land, not under the, the kind of covering of night, but we'd be out in the open because we are God's people. And this is often what we do, isn't it? Man, God, if you are good, then where are you? God, if you are light, then where are you? Then what's happening inside of our lives? And I mean, Gideon is asking that, that cosmic question that a lot of my college students ask, is that if God is God, then why is all this bad stuff happening? Why is all this bad stuff happening to, quote-unquote, good people? If God was God, I would not be threshing my wheat in the middle of the night using a wine press, angel of the Lord. And yet, what does the angel of the Lord say in verse 14? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand, the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And immediately, much like we saw in Moses, this kind of conflict as Moses is throwing out excuses at the burning bush. I can't go back to Pharaoh. I don't t -t -t talk very good, God. Have you forgotten this? I mean, who am I going to say? In a very similar picture, we have God showing up to this man in the middle of the night named Gideon. And immediately, Gideon is throwing out all the excuses of why he can't go do what God wants him to to do. Verse 15, how does he respond? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest, and, and I'm the least in my father's house. But get what he says back to him in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And if you have your own Bible here today, you should mark, highlight, use every color pencil you got. If you're one of those folks, draw out to the side in your journaling Bible this very phrase, but I will be with you. After years, all of these excuses, I'm weak. My clan is weak. We're the nerd group. We're the weak group. We're the ruddy group. And even out of all of my daddy's boys, I'm the ruddiest. I'm the smallest. I'm the weakest. And yet God, on this scene, looks at this man named Gideon, and he says, but I will be with 
you, brothers and sisters, this morning, if you want to know what the peace of God is and who God is himself, a, a, a brief explanation of that is the deep understanding that God Almighty is with you. Can we take just a moment to acknowledge that? God is with you. Every thought Every action, every bright spot, and every darkened depth of the pit of your life. You know where God is with his children? He is with you. Not just in a general sense, but God is with you in a specific, supernatural sense. We can get so heady and so smart that we lose the, the simplicity of this gospel truth that God is with us. Us. And if God is with us, then who can be against us? There is nothing that we can not accomplish apart from, from, from being with God. If he is truly with us and he has called us to something, then the peace of God should be reigning, reigning supremely inside of us as we acknowledge and know, even in this very moment, that God, you are here with us. And this changes the story. But much like us, after hearing this, getting and still not convinced. Any of you guys ever pray for a sign? Right? Lord, if she looks at me one more time, I'm going to ask her out. Right? If the third car is a white car, I'm going to know. Right? If I open up my Bible and fall directly on this verse. See, Gideon was still not convinced. And so he says, I need you to show me a sign. So Gideon made some lunch. Cooked some goat. I guess this may be a midnight snack. Maxed some goat, some crackers, some broth. And he's going to have a midnight snack with God. And in doing so, the Bible tells us here in this passage that, that Gideon, in asking for this sign, and so the angel of the Lord is gracious and patient with Gideon. And he says, here's what you do. I want you to take that meat. I want you to take those crackers. I want you to take that broth. See that rock over there? I want you to put the meat on there. I want you to put the crackers on there. And I want you to pour the broth on there. Then the Bible tells us in this passage that the angel of the Lord took his staff, touched the tip of it, and that it was immediately consumed in a fire. Gideon was convinced. He got it. To a degree. To a degree. He tells him here in this passage, after he uh, responds, let's read in verse 22, then, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. See, when you encounter God, you are humble to the point of the belief that you should surely die. We see this over and over again inside of the Old Testament. A holy, righteous, sovereign God cannot be in the presence of this evil. And yet, in this passage, God bestows grace to this coward named Gideon. Verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not 
fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And immediately, what is Gideon's response? Then he builds an altar and he declares, the Lord is peace. Now, a little bit of work. I do not know Hebrew. I have to look up everything or call my buddy Dallas um, and to ask him about things about Hebrew. And so, um, but what I'm, I've learned enough to know this, this specific phrase, the Lord is peace. The, the, the Jews did not want to use God's name in vain. And so whenever they went to say, instead of saying the word Yahweh, in many cases, they would use the word Jehovah. And the Hebrew word for peace is this, shalom. And so when, when Gideon is saying this, he is saying the Jehovah, shalom. All right? So you're going to repeat back to me because that's what good teachers do, right? Everybody say Jehovah. Jehovah. Shalom. Shalom. All right. So in, in looking at these words, let's break this down just ever so slightly. When you stand face to face to an almighty God, you are a sinful man. You deserve to die. Remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Todd talks about this very faithfully in looking at God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. There is no peace for the wicked the Bible tells us. This is what we want to focus on. If we're going to seek and save your God as the ultimate good of the gospel, then we must understand that God not only gives out peace, but ultimately, he is the incarnation of peace. Jehovah Shalom. He is the Lord of peace. Now, peace the word shalom inside of um, the Hebrew language is really tough for us to translate inside of the English language because there are so many depths and layers to this word that it's really hard, again, inside of English to kind of fling just one word. And we've tried to do our very best with the use of peace, but there is no single word that can convey this. The word peace, it means to, to be safe, to be sound, to be healthy, unscathed, to, to be at peace, to, to be finished or completed. It means uninjured in mind. It signifies a sense of well-being and harmony both within and without. It means health and wholeness and happiness and quietness of soul. It means preservation, prosperity, tranquility, security, safety, and includes all that makes life worthwhile. However, Specifically in this kind of passage and in other passages, there's a deeper root to the word shalom. This type of peace means a completion and fulfillment and thus entering into a state of wholeness and unity, oneness, singleness, by a restored relationship, especially wholeness of the relationship between a person and God. In the Psalms and in the prophets, it even goes beyond this, and at least two-thirds of the biblical references to shalom indicate a total fulfillment that comes when an individual experiences God's presence. When Gideon is using all sorts of excuses, what does God say to Gideon? Gideon. 
The Lord is with you. That is what we're talking about. We're talking about a broken, wicked humanity. How can it ever be connected to a holy, sovereign God? And it must be that the only way that that can happen is if that God is with us, that we are in this, this peace of mind that comes in the midst of great chaos and questioning, that God himself is with us. Us. I believe that this conveys the core message of the word shalom, that God is with us. And this small phrase changes everything, brothers and sisters. See, God is everywhere. And yet, there is a specific presence of God. And when God shows up in that way, It transforms everything about you. It transforms everything about a church. It, it trans everything about a city. It transforms everything about a country. Um, there, this idea within American Christianity that you in some way can just repeat some random prayer from your mind and, and call that an encounter with God, I want you to, and then have no fruit of change inside of your life is an unbiblical thing. See, brothers and sisters, when the peace of God, when you have been reconciled to God, He changes everything. He owns everything about you. That's why Jesus says, what must a man do? He must lay down his life, take up his cross. How will you know them? We will know them by the fruits of God's Holy Spirit inside of that person's life. The hardest person to convince inside of American culture is not the atheist, but it is the person who attends church all the time or is a cult Christian or shows up occasionally that man I am good with Jesus because of some past experience but I want you to know the presence of God is not just in some past experience but if you can't tell me how you're engaging God in this last week then there should be a sense of of elevating sense of man have I encountered the resurrected Lord when you have counted the resurrected Lord, you can do nothing but worship him with all of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure. You will not skip out on things. You will not skim the surface of this Christian thing, but you will press into the table because you are completely consumed with an all-consuming God because you are humbled at the fact that he would so choose you and say as he did to a coward named Gideon or a coward named Eric, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. He is amongst us. He has not left us. God is with his people. Peace comes and is not the absence of your chaos. Peace is, is, is not the absence of war. Peace is not the, the absence of pain and sorrow. No, biblical peace is that in the midst of your most wretched of moments, your most horrific acts, that God is with us. Spoil alert to the book of Judges. Judges does not end well. It's a very violent, gory, just sexually moral, even Gideon himself, 
makes just terrible, terrible decisions. I would encourage you that if, if you're a dad in this room and you have a young boy who can handle it or some teenage young men in your house to take this next week and to read the book of Judges. I mean, it is like an action-packed, movie, gory, intense mess filled with warriors and action and girls and dying and death and gruesome things. But it does not end well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me over to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21. The very last chapter and the very last verse. I mean, this is, a, this is like way to end the movie. This is the last verse inside of Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, immediately, you're immersed in the climax of the movie, and all of a sudden, it goes to a blank screen, and the credits roll. And that's what they leave us with. You're like, man, I just spent like a hundred bucks for me and my wife to come to this movie. Right? And that's how it's going to end? There's still no king? And everybody is just running around doing what is right in their own eyes. And this is a very disturbing and tragic book. It's an historical account of the human condition in desperate need for a king. When you read that last verse inside the book of Judges, it should do two things. It should stir within you great fear. They have no king. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But also, in that very same horrific verse, is a foreshadowing. And that foreshadowing is, there's going to be a king. A king is coming. In the midst of depth and depravity, and wretchedness and wickedness, there is hope, as we learned last week, and it's the best sermon last week on hope that I ever gave last Sunday. Check it out. That there, in the midst of that darkness, there is immense hope. There's immense hope. There's a foretaste that, hey, there is a king that is coming. There's a king that is coming. It points toward their need and our need for God's peace, for God's grace. See, the, need, the people needed someone, a godly king, who would lead them back to God and not do like most of, of these men and jokers that we see inside the Old Testament. See, their, their fellowship with God was broken. Their actions had declared war against God. They needed a king who would do what was right in God's eyes and not his own eyes. Is this not foretasting of what Jesus would say? I came not to do my will 
but to do the will of the one who has sent me. See, they needed peace. They ultimately needed peace with God. See, for judges and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, what do we see? The failures of these earthly kings. That they cannot keep peace and yet are continually told there's a king that is coming. There's a king that is coming. See, God had planned before the foundation of the world to illustrate to them and to us what they need is not to put their faith in a man. Not to put your faith in a government. Not to put your faith in a money or a person or your your kid or a gazillion other idols that we create inside of our sinful hearts. No, the idea is, is that you don't need those things. What you need is the peace of God. You need to understand, I need to understand that God is king. And so that when the God king comes, we'll know what he came to do. That he has come to bring peace to God's people. It wouldn't be Advent if we didn't Christmas this up a little bit. Turn to the book of Luke. Linus, the great theologian, steps out on a stage to those kids. He reads from Luke chapter 2. And you guys know the story. Jesus comes and they're this, you know, ragamuffin group of shepherds. And what does the Bible tell us in Luke 2? When are they working? At night. And all of a sudden, not an angel, not the angel of the Lord, because he was busy being born. But the Bible tells us in Luke 2 that a multitude, this is believed to be thousands upon angels, show up on the hillside and to begin to declare to this group of men, these men who were the outcasts of society, these men who were often hated, no one wanted to be a shepherd. It was considered to be the, the lowest of jobs. You had more of a relationship with an animal than you did anyone else. It was despised by men to be this shepherd. And yet, the multitude of heavenly hosts, as they are in fear, what do they begin to say? Glory to God in the highest, in earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. You need to get that this morning. Notice here that The angels of the Lord, the mighty host, the multitude, do not say, glory to God in the highest and earth peaks among all those whom God has created. That's not what the Bible says. Now the Bible tells us through these angels, through Gideon and through a lot of other places in Scripture, that the peace of God, the present incarnation of God himself, that very peace incarnated is coming to a specific group of people. And those group of people are those whom he is pleased with. And so how do you become pleased of God? You're given it. It's a gift. See, peace is not coming to the entire world. 
peace is coming to those whom God is pleased with. And who is God pleased with? God is pleased with his children. God is pleased with his people. And how do you become one of God's children? How do you become one of God's people? You and I must be in the king. And as we learned over two years of going through Matthew, who is the king? Jesus is that king. He is the king. He is the Lord. See, the judge's passage sounds a lot like our culture today, does it not? That we are a people without a king? That he or she is, is just doing whatever is right in their own eyes? I teach up at Western. I love my college students, and I hear over and over and over again inside of my classes up there this key phrase. Well, if it's not hurting anyone else, do whatever you want to do. Do you want to marry your dog? It's not hurting me. Marry them. You want to have multiple marriages with multiple people? Hey, it's not hurting me. If I've heard this. If you want to have an abortion, see, you having an abortion does not hurt me, and so you do whatever you want to do. See, this is the practice to seeing activity and mindset of most of the people maybe in this room and definitely in our culture that we do not need a sovereign one that we do not need authority that we do not need a king that we simply need to do whatever is right in our own eyes if it if it makes you feel good and it doesn't hurt anyone else then go and do it see we live today in a pluralistic society surrounded by idols Idols of power, idols, idols of work, idols of money, idols of consumerism, the idol of self. It is my time. I know I've got a wife and kids, but I get my time. Let me help you out with something. Those of you who aren't married yet, when you, gave, when you got married, you gave up all your time. There is no such thing. And if you can't do that, then you shouldn't have gotten married. But if you did then you need to understand that you gave up your right to be right. And even more so, brothers and sisters, when Jesus sovereignly comes into your life, you need to understand, he doesn't own just 10%. It's all his. He doesn't just own a, a, a kind of, you know, a stereotypical, man, this is our compartmentalized Jesus Sunday morning life. No, Jesus owns everything. He is the sovereign king. He is the Lord. You do not have any rights in and of themselves. You do not have the right to do whatever is right in your own eyes. No, if Jesus is king, then we submit humbly and graciously at the realization that we did not deserve that grace. And yet he gave. Gideon did not deserve it. Yet he chose him. Chose him for a work. Chose him to do something. Many who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, let's face it, we're not separate. No longer are we distinct from the world. See, brothers and sisters, we're all looking for some harmony, aren't we? 
We're all looking for just some sort of rest. I mean, I've got lots of friends who, who man, in their lives and in this struggle of, of wanting peace, they're just wanting some emotional feeling. And so to get some sort of numbness to what's happening in their lives in the world, man, they'll, they'll pursue pornography, they'll, they'll pursue alcohol, they'll, they'll pursue um, drugs, they'll pursue all this sort of stuff to just try to find some sort of rest. And here's the thing is, is I'm not trying to belittle our darkness and our depression and our anxiety okay running phrase here at mission none of us are okay in this room none of us but it's not okay for us to want to stay that way we're all jacked up and yet god and working inside of us is, is, is not the seeking of just some emotional thing. God doesn't want us to pretend like the house of cards isn't collapsing. That's not what the peace of God is. No, peace of God is resting in something. And what is that something that God is with us? See, the greatest war fought between is not between man and man. The greatest battle being fought is not America against terrorism. That is not the greatest war that is being fought. No, the greatest war that is being fought is between God and man. See, friends, you and I want God's throne. We, we want to be sovereign. We want to be king. We want to be the master of our own domain. And, and God does not take this lightly. Our sin nature daily declares mutiny against our captain. And this makes God very angry. This is not a joke. And so how do we get peace? How do we get reconciliation? How do we just know that God is with us? Well, brothers and sisters, it is not because you have done something. Throughout the Old Testament, we learn of something called the, 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 the peace offering. It was a sacrifice given by the Israelites that they could go and sacrifice some sort of animal and the blood sacrifice was meant to reflect and celebrate the peace that they had with God. But guess what happened? It never lasted. Why? Because the cycle is hard to break and you and I can't break it on our own. Something innocent had to be killed in order to atone for the sins of God's people. What is atonement? At one minute, that means to be brought to God. It is reconciliation with God. And these peace offerings, as they continue to kill all these animals, again, it would last and create peace between them and God for a small period of time before they would go back into sinning. Yet what does God do? God sends a lamb. God sends himself. Jesus no longer just comes as a messenger, but he comes as a God-man. He comes in flesh, born of a virgin. He lives this life. Man cannot save themselves from this endless cycle. Only God can restore those whom he is at war with. And what begins to happen? The beauty of the cross and the resurrection. This is where God takes his enemy, the children of wrath. He dies a bloody death upon a cross. He is put into a borrowed tomb and he is resurrected on the third day to end this cycle forever through Jesus. 
This is the beauty of the gospel as Jesus is the ultimate peace offering. I'm so glad this morning that you did not bring animals because Pastor Todd would have a muddy, bloody experience up here doing that this morning. But no, this cycle ends. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate peace offering. As Brother Todd, Pastor Todd, Elder Todd read earlier this morning in Romans chapter 5, what do we see? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we are to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope that does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For why we will still, what? Weak. And I'm so thankful, because I am a mess and a wreck of a man. I'm a coward of a man. But that, that passage, which many of us know, doesn't say, for while we were still strong, for while we were, if you've ever met somebody who says, man, I really want to come to Jesus, but i got to get some things worked out before I do that. Man, that's hogwash. That is deception from sin, Satan, and death itself, because you can never be clean enough and strong enough to finally come before an almighty, holy God, know what has to happen. For while we were still weak, how many of you are still weak this morning? There's hope for you. There's peace for you at the right time, Christ died for the righteous. Is that what it says? No. At the right time, Christ died for the holy. No, that's not what it says. No, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one who is scarcely to die of a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, um, one would dare to die. But God shows his love in us that while we were still sinners, this means, if we could go into the Greek here, it means like you're doing it right then. Like you're caught red-handed by God, and that's when he saves you. Not on your best of moments. Not while you're sitting here at church. But that God is the type of God that shows up the people who are in the midst of doing the horrific act and redeems them and saves them and brings peace to them. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God. For it is while we were enemies, again, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, this is the peace of God, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice at God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Jesus, I love this passage in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. See, there's a worldly peace and there's a supernatural peace. Jesus came to bring you supernatural peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Pastor, author, speaker, I wish I was as smart as this dude. Tim Keller says this, on the cross, Jesus lost all his peace so that you could have eternal peace. On the cross, Jesus lost all of his peace so that you and I could have eternal peace. See, God wants to be at peace with you. 
But you can do nothing, you can bring nothing, you can add nothing to create that reconciliation. You are a wretched, hopeless person in and of yourself. And yet, what does God do? God shows up on the scene. And through the person and work of the ultimate true king named Jesus, God brings the peace. God saves you and I from God. This atonement brings shalom. This violent act brings shalom between you and God. Our broken relationship is mended. There is no peace because God was not present with them. And yet, here in a specific way, when he shows up and is present with them, it changes everything. So this morning, may as the word says, may the peace of Christ rule our hearts. One of the fruits of the Spirit this morning that we need to be reminded of is that if, if, the, if you have been saved, the Spirit is inside of you. It's not something that's coming later. It is fully inside of you. He is fully inside of you. And the Bible tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Peace. See, brothers and sisters, like many who are running around doing religious activity and know the story and yet are missing the King, May this Christmas, may Jesus, the incarnation of peace, may He rule our hearts and give us a peace that passes all understanding. We could earthly live in a time without any war, but if the war between you and God is not satisfied, then it means absolutely nothing. I'll leave you with this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be said of us. May it be said of you. Let's pray.